Number three. We'll find ourselves in John 3.16 this morning. Just want you to, to notice too, there's a, there's a code that you can scan in the, in the bulletin. You can bring up the, the sermon notes on your, on your phone. If you use your camera app, you can, you can scan that and, and just look at it. Uh, or you can fill it in. You can add more information. You can um, use that to, to write other things down and even save it to your phone when you're done. But, and nobody will judge that you're on your phone. Church. John 3, let's just start at the beginning and, and get some uh, wider context of this great conversation that exists between Jesus and Nicodemus. If you would stand with me as we honor the, the reading of Scripture together. There was a, a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot be born, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things, and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Stop there. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to what is most definitely the, the most famous scripture in all of the Bible. A text in which we all know. We're familiar with it. It was probably the first verse that we were exposed to. It was probably the first text that we used as we shared our faith with somebody. It was probably the text that somebody used as they shared their faith with us. Lord, as we come to this famous text, Lord, we pray that your spirit would work in such a way 
that we would see Jesus Christ exalted, that your love for the world would be highlighted, and that we would see it as great and grand and experience it in a, a new way that our lives might be changed and shaped once again by this great text. We pray that your spirit would do that. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe seated. What is your favorite verse? Some people have a, a favorite verse, a, a life verse, they might call it, a verse that has really meant something to them. When we went through uh, the book of Romans, we mentioned that, that Luther, his favorite text, his life text was Romans 1.17, the righteous shall live by faith. It was, it was that text in, in Luther's life that just helped him to, to see the gospel in all its glory. Mine, I would say, is Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. Divides the soul and the spirit, the bone and the marrow, and judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. For me, that verse is a, a constant reminder that God accomplishes His sovereign, redemptive purpose through His word. It is the, the Spirit of God that uses God's self-revelation to bring about godly repentance and change lives. John Wesley, he favored Zechariah 2.2 that says, Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? And I think you, think you can see why he liked that. It's truly how we need to see ourselves. As a stick snatched from fire. It's beautiful imagery. David Livingstone, like Matthew 28, 20, surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. John Newton, Romans 5, 20, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Just a, a small picture of, of people who found life verses in, in different portions of the scripture for different reasons. Sometimes the verses that mean the most to us aren't necessarily the most famous verses in all of scripture. But... For one reason or another, these verses really resonated with us at one time or another. The Lord used them in a special way to, to shape who we are. Now, certainly John 3.16 is one of those verses for many. It's a verse that the Lord has used in, in countless witnessing conversations. It's the first verse that many have memorized. Many know it. They could recite it. But yet, many know nothing of the verse's context. It is the verse that is the most famous, but perhaps even the most misunderstood. It's fair to say that about every place in the world where the gospel is known, this verse is almost instantly known as well. It's the first verse that translators put into another language. People put signs with John 3.16 on it at sporting events. 
The, the popularity of the verse is remarkable. And the question is why? Well, I, I think it's easy to see that the great emphasis in this verse on the love of God, the emphasis on God's gift to us, and then the emphasis on the fact that eternal life is available to anyone who believes. It's a pretty simple outline of the verse. In fact, I would say if you're an underliner or a highlighter, I would make a, a special reference of, of, of those three words in the text. Loved, gave, and believes. So we're going we're gonna to look at this very profound verse and we're going we're gonna to look at it over the next three weeks. So today we're going to focus our attention on the love of God, for God so loved the world. And I know some of us are thinking we're going to spend three weeks on one verse. Uh, yeah. Um, for one, I, I've asked the, the question, why is the verse so remarkably popular? Why is it the first verse that is learned and the first verse that is translated? I think to understand that and to really comprehend the, the, the greatness of this text, we need to spend some time with it. D.L. Moody was in Britain in the early days of his ministry. He met a, a young evangelist there by the name of Henry Morehouse, and the two had a conversation, and Morehouse told Moody that he was thinking of coming to America. And Moody was uh, being polite in the conversation and said, well, hey, if you ever find yourself in America and you're in Chicago, you should come by my church and I'll give you a chance to preach. Moody regretted saying that right after he said it because he had never heard Morehouse preach. And he was being polite uh, in the conversation, but sometimes being polite gets you in a little bit of trouble. He hoped that Morehouse wouldn't come to Chicago and, and look him up. And he thought, hey, what are, the, what are the chances of this happening? Well, sometime later, Moody received a telegram that said, I've just arrived in New York. I'll be in Chicago on Sunday. Morehouse. Of course, Moody didn't know what to do. And to make matters worse, Moody was leaving on a, a trip. He would be absent that Sunday, but he promised to let him preach, so he did. He told his wife and the leaders of the church that he would let him preach. And once he saw how he did, and he would perhaps invite him again, um, but it would be kind of a, a testing period. So Moody was gone for the week. He came home and, and he said to his wife, so how did that young preacher do last week? And she said, well, he's a better preacher than you are. He's telling sinners that God loves them. Moody said, But that isn't right. God does not love sinners. To which his wife responded, Well, you need to go hear him. Moody said, He's still preaching? And she said, Yeah, he's been preaching all week. He's only used one text, John 3.16. So Moody went that night to hear Morehouse, and he said that, all week, Morehouse said, all week I've been looking for a text to preach and I can't find a better one than John 3.16. So I'll just talk about that once more. He did, and afterward, afterward, Moody said that it was that night that he first understood the greatness of God's love. 
Just think about that phrase for a moment. The greatness of God's love. We speak of things as being great all the time, don't we? This event will be so great. It'll have such a, a great impact on people for years to come. That movie was great. That speaker was great. You've never heard a greater podcast or read a greater book on that subject than this. In Ephesians 2, we read of God's great love for us. In the first three chapter, in the first three verses, Paul paints a, a vivid picture of the unregenerate heart in Ephesians 2 as being dead in their sins, following the desires of their sinful nature, going after things of the world, and being ruled by the devil himself. These, the, the unregenerate, are then described as objects of God's wrath. Which is why Moody would say, God does not love sinners, right? But then verse 4. But because of God's great love for us. Or some translations say it this way. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Notice the contrast. The one who was dead spiritually was made alive in Christ, not by anything they had done. The verses that go on labor that point. But it's also made clear in the two words there. But God, but God made you alive when you were dead. It is only God that can give the dead life. And I think when we read this passage, we sort of skip over that phrase because of the great love with which he loved us. It would just suffice it to say with the love that he loved us. Because that brings up the question, well, what, what love did he love us with? So even though the, the radical nature of God's love is still highlighted there, the word great should be there. Because even though it's a, a, a tremendous understatement for the word great to be here, because it does mean grand but it also means that there's nothing more grand than the love that is displayed in sinners in that God took dead sinners and made them alive spiritually. There's nothing greater than that. There's nothing more grand. No longer are these the objects of God's wrath, but now they're objects of God's love and affection. So in our text, we read, For God so loved the world. Notice the word so. It isn't that God just loved the world. He so Love the world. CJ is our boy that, that tells us that he loves us frequently. He's such a, he's sweet. Really, multiple times a day, he'll come to us and say that he, he loves us. And I think that in the back of our minds, we're wondering, what did you just do? Uh, but the kid is generally, genuinely affectionate. Sometimes he'll come up and say, uh, Dad, I love you. Just out of the blue for no reason. 
Other times he'll say, Dad, I love you so much. Of course, I, I love to hear him say it either way, but the second especially melts my heart. In our text, we read that God so loved the world that he gave us his only son. I, I think CJ is saying, Dad, my love for you is, is so high. The, the, the depth of, of my love, I, I can't describe it. I love you so much. He's talking of, of, of depth for me. This is how much. But I would also, this isn't what's happening in John 3.16. The word so here is actually pointing to how God loved the world. That he gave his only son. It, it, think about this for a minute. If God were saying here that he loves us so much, and because of that love for us, that he sent his son, then there must be some reason that God had to love us. That in some sense we were good enough to merit the sending of his son. Perhaps that's one way the, the verse is, is misunderstood. The word so here points to how God loved the world. He loved the world by sending his son. Now you, you might not think this is a very big difference, but if you read the word so here, the first way, notice that that puts the emphasis on the entire verse on us. If we read God loved the world so much, and God's motivation for offering his son becomes his love for us, then we're the center. And not the giving of the son. I've heard it this way before. I'm sure you have too, that we should put our name in the verse. For God so loved Colt that he gave his only son. And while that is true, it isn't true that God's motivation for sending his son was his love for me. His love is demonstrated for me in sending his son. That's the point of the text. There's, there's a wrong way to understand this verse that implies that God gave Jesus because of our intrinsic worth. Does that make sense? You're worth so much that God gave his son. The emphasis is on your worth, not Christ's worth. That's dangerous. There's a, there's a popular worship song that I, I really like, but it has one line that's, that's problematic. It says this, you didn't want heaven without us, so you brought heaven down. In, in other words, the, the reason that Jesus came to earth to die for us is that we were worth so much to God. Now this is problematic because it just isn't in the Bible. Jesus didn't come to us because of our worth, but his coming down to us brought us worth. Our worth is in Christ. I hope this, this makes sense. There, there's a way to read the verse that actually reverses the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is that we find our worth in Jesus Christ, not that he found, our worth, he, he found worth in us. I think one of the, the places that is important in Scripture to keep in mind is in Romans 3, where Paul is describing the human condition apart from Christ. He, he speaks of the person without Christ is, is not seeking God at all, is unrighteous, is altogether worthless. That's strong language. 
Some translations say useless. Without Christ, you're worthless. You're useless. You're unrighteous. You're destined for a devil's hell. That's the point. Paul didn't say that we were worth so much. He actually said it very clearly. You're worthless. In Christ, we find our worth. I, I think this truth is, is also illustrated beautifully in Paul's short letter to Philemon. Paul is uh, sending back a, a runaway slave. Philemon is a, a church leader in, in Colossae. Apparently he had a slave, and this slave ran away, ran to Rome. Paul meets him in, in Rome in some way, probably when he was under house arrest and, and preaching from his door. Onesimus uh, gets saved. He had come to Christ, and, and, and Paul sends him back with this letter to Philemon. And Paul says that, that before, before he had known Christ, before he, he ran away, he was useless. But now he had become useful. It's a play on words because the, the slave's name, Onesimus, meant useful. And Paul is saying that spiritually speaking, he didn't live up to his name. In other words, here's this slave that was supposed to be useful, but was actually useless because he didn't have Christ. But now in Christ, he lives up to his name. He's worth something. He's useful to you and to me. It's a beautiful letter. In other words... Our worth comes from Christ. Christ came to give us worth, not because of our worth. Does this point to the greatness of God's love? That he sent his, his son not because of our worth in some respect. Spiritually speaking, we were worthless. But his love is so great that he sent his son into the world to live, to die for people that, that hated him. To give them life, to take those who are enemies of God and make them sons or daughters and objects of his love and affection. It's, it's a remarkable truth. This is God's great love for us. God's love is, is great. It's also infinite. So we're in Ephesians 2. We see the greatness of the love. In the third chapter of Ephesians, we see how it is infinite. Look with me at Ephesians 3, 18 and 19 where Paul is praying that the believers may have strength to, to comprehend with all the saints what is the, the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, and to know the, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. The love of God is infinite. We've alluded to this in that God would send his own son to die for people who live in active opposition to him, who live treasonous lives, that love must be infinite. But the question is, is, can you comprehend the love of God? And the answer is, well, in part. Just thinking about Ephesians 3, the, the height and the depth of the love of God. We ask the, the question, how high is God's love for us? What is, the, what is the depth of God's love? How can we know that the love of God is, is high. I mean, we can know that. We can know that it's deep. But how deep? The vastness of God's love is, is infinite. 
Just think about the fact that we don't love people like that as a general rule. When one wrongs us, we expect them to make it right. That there's an aspect that some cannot make up for the wrong that they have done. In those situations, we need to ask, how deep is our love for this other person, this other group? Certainly it's not infinite. God's love is, is perfect. It is infinite. Ours is far from that. But it's still not an excuse to ask ourselves that question. How deep is my love? Does it emulate the, the depth of God's love for me on any level? I would suggest that when we contemplate the infinite nature of God's love for us, we start to, to comprehend it and we'll translate it in how we love other people. Understanding God's love for us in part even affects how we love other people. Wouldn't it be something if those around us look at our love for one another and we're amazed by the, the depth of our love for one another? Let me ask the question another way. How much does God, the Father, love his own Son? Strange question, I know. But the love that exists between the members of the Trinity, how do you, how do you quantify that? You, you can't, right? Flip over with me to John chapter 17 for a moment. John chapter 17 is the high priestly prayer. It's where Jesus first prays for himself as he prepares to, to go to the cross. He prays for the, the disciples and then he prays for future believers. Now, when we get to the end of that prayer, he's praying for us. And I'll, I'll pick up in verse 22. We read this. The glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them. Right? God loved them. Following this, the world may know that God loved them, the disciples, future believers, as you loved me. How much does God love the Son? The answer here that is given as much as he loves his children. Infinitely. How much does God love the Son? How much does the Father love the Son? You can't quantify that. that. How much does God love his children, you and I? You, you can't quantify. It's the same love. The, the depth of that love is the same. It's, it's infinite. So God's love is both great, it's, it's infinite, but it's also giving. And, and this is really the, the heart of John 3.16, isn't it? God's love is, is so great and, and vast that he would send his one and only son to die for you. We're going to focus on this next week, but we can't miss it here in focusing our attention on God's love. I, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but, but perhaps you will, you will start. But when you are reading the, the New Testament and you read about the love of God... And in that immediate context of the love of God, often in this space of a, a few words, is a reference to the cross of Christ. Why is that important? Think, think about it for a moment. How do you know that God loves us? Some might say, well, we look at the beauty of the world. We go out and we, 
We look at the, the sunrise, the, the sunset. And we know that, that God loves us. We, we know that God loves us because people value love and, and respect. We know this. These are just these, these traits in, in all of us. We know that God loves us because of these things. Those are good things. Come from God for sure. But as Christians, we know that God loves us because he has given us his only son. It's in God's self-sacrifice that we know something of his character. A moment ago, I challenged us to think of God's infinite love and, and how that shapes our love for others. But just let's build on that a minute. Think about God's infinite love, but also think about how he loves us. We know this because he, he gave us his son, that his son died for us. Let me ask you this. When it comes to our relationships between brothers, within families, workplaces, between people that are different than you culturally or ethnically, when it comes to our relationships with others, it is how God has loved us that is the basis for our love for other people. Someone asked me the other day in a snarky way, why does the conversation of reconciliation always come back to the atonement? As if one didn't have something to do with the other. The answer to that question is because the love of God is displayed in the giving of his son. And the giving of his son has a profound impact on the way we love. It's, it's the basis for it. How, how do we love? I, I think Paul answers this question pretty well in 2 Corinthians 5. He says this, in verses 14 through 21. For the love of Christ controls us. Just think about that in verse 14. The love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ, as we've been talking about, the love of Christ shapes us, right? Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, the space of just a couple verses, yet the love of Christ, the love of God for us, the death of Christ. Therefore all have died, and he died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. I mean, over and over again. Love of Christ controls us. Why? Death of Christ. Atonement. From now on, therefore we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Meaning... God making his appeal through us. And this is the appeal. We implore you on the behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. We could talk about that text for a long time, but suffice it to say that the way we love the world around us is, is, is the ministry of reconciliation. This is, this is the task of, of the church. Go and, and make disciples. This is, this is what we do. 
which is a, a far cry from much of the, the talk of we, that we hear today concerning reconciliation, reconciliation between the different people and people groups. Today it's often disconnected from the cross to the point where the Christian message of reconciliation has nothing to do with the cross of Christ. But the Christian gospel makes it clear. If there's ever going to be any real reconciliation between people, it starts with being reconciled to God. And how we love, then, is to implore people to be reconciled with God because this is how God is making his appeal in the world. And it is through you and I because we realize that those who have been reconciled to God are a new creature. All things have become new. The cross of Christ changes everything. So, God's love is great. It's infinite. It's giving, and it's also unchangeable, which is perhaps uh, the most beautiful part of the text. I think this is the point that is made in one of the greatest stories in all of the Bible, the story of Hosea and Gomer. If you don't know the story, or if you know the story, let me give you the, the Cliff Notes version. Hosea was a a preacher, a prophet, and, and one day the Lord came to him and, and told him to go and, and marry a woman that would prove to be unfaithful to him. God said that he was to love her, but she was going to turn away from his love. But the more faithless that she became, the more unfaithful that she became, Hosea was supposed to be all the more faithful. This was an illustration of how God loved the nation of Israel. The marriage was a, a pageant played out before the people. Hosea played the part of God. Gomer played the part of Israel. And the pageant was to show God's love for Israel and how it was unchangeable. Hosea did what God told him to do. In Hosea 1, 2, and 3, we read this. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take for yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went, and he took Gomer, and she conceived and bore him a son. So at this point, after, after she has a, a son, God breaks into the story and says you're to name the son Jezreel, which means scattered, because God was going to scatter the people, people of Israel over all the earth. Gomer has a daughter. Her name meant not pitied because there was a time in which God would not show love to the people of Israel anymore for what they have done. There was another son. God named him as well. This time it was not my people. God was saying, there will be a time that comes when you're not my people and I will not be your God. Now, if the pageant was over at this point, we would understand that it would be Illustrating the opposite of God's unfailing love. But it would also show that God was justified in removing his people from him because they, they went after other gods. Should God show them pity? Should God keep them in their homeland? Should God give them this inheritance? But of course, the story doesn't stop. God interrupts the story again again. This time to tell us how it is going to end. He changes the names of the children. Instead of scattered, it will be planted. 
In other words, God would plant his people in their own land. The second child is no pity. He would change his life to God will have pity on those who are his children. God makes the point that Israel, who doesn't deserve to be his people, will be made his people, not because of their faithfulness to God, but because of his faithfulness to them. At this point in Hosea and Gomer's marriage, the events happened just as God said they were going to happen. Gomer's eyes wander. She leaves she leaves Hosea. She goes after a, another man, and Hosea is left alone, and her life goes downhill. At one point, she's with a guy that could not take care of her, and she was hungry. So God tells Hosea, I want you to go make sure that she has what she needs, because I care for the people of Israel, even when they're running away from me. So Hosea did. He, he bought her food, and he gave that food to the to the man that was living with his wife. And she didn't even know that it was Hosea that provided for her. God does that for us, doesn't he? He loves us like that. I, I remember in a time of rebellion in my life when I was running from God, thinking that he wasn't there, thinking that he didn't care. Now I, I look back on that and I see so many ways that God continued to, to love me when my heart was, was far from where it should have been. I'm sure many of you have a similar testimony that, that God had been working all the while. And even in letting his children run for him is an occasion for God to show his great love for us. Gomer's life sank lower yet. There was a point in which she wasn't wanted by anyone. And she was being sold in the slave market in the city of Jerusalem. And God told Hosea to go and buy her. Now, we need to understand a little bit about how the, the slave market worked. It, it was humiliating. Gomer would have been sold naked. Because when a beautiful girl was on the block like that to be sold, the men would bid freely, and bidding went very high. In other words, Hosea walked into that slave market to buy his wife back, knowing that he was going to have to spend a lot of money for her. One man bid three pieces of silver, another five went up to 13 low bidders are out Hosea bids 15 someone else says 15 with a bushel of barley Hosea says 15 a bushel of barley and another half bushel and Hosea got her for that so Hosea then takes his wife off the auction block the wife that he now owns and he clothes her and leads her away. Some say, so this is a picture of God's love? It is. It's how God loves you. Here is, here's Hosea 3, 1 through 3. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods, and love raisins, or cakes of raisins. 
So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a letch of barley. And I said to her, You must, you must dwell with me for many days. You will not play the whore, nor belong to another man, and so will I be to you. So after all of this, Hosea tells her that she is his. Isn't that, isn't that something? I mean, here's, here's this woman that, that left, that, that has run away, who doesn't deserve anything. And here he's saying, we're going to be faithful to one another. You and me. We're going to have this arrangement. This is what I expect from you, and this is what I'm going to give to you. I'm going to show love to you despite how you've treated me. This shows the, the greatness of the unchangeable love of God. Because we are slaves under the, the bondage of sin. And as the world's bidding goes higher and higher, Jesus enters the slave market of sin and bids his own blood. Something that is worth more than anything else. You see, it is in Jesus Christ that we have worth. That he bought us off the slave market of sin that he has taken and, and clothed us in his own righteousness. And he says, you will live with me for many days and I with you. I'm yours. You are mine. I've bought you with my blood. He redeemed us, not because of any worth in us, but because of his great love for us. Here's the thing with all of this. First, it has everything to do with us. Either you have been, either, either you have placed your faith and in, in trust in Jesus, either he's purchased you with his blood or he hasn't. If you've not placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you need to step back and contemplate the great love of God in sending his own son. The greatness of that love in making a way of redemption for the unworthy and the unlovable the infinite nature of God's love, that the depth of God's love that is on display, how he gave for you, and how his love for you is unchangeable. And ask yourself, does anyone, or has anyone, loved you like that? Like Hosea loved Gomer. Because Christ has. And that love is displayed on the cross. What about the one that has believed, who, who is a Christian, but the reality of God's love has become distant? And it's really not a, a pattern of your love for other people. Well, when we start to think about the, the greatness of God's love, the the infinite nature of God's love, how God's love is, is giving and unchangeable. When we start to, to contemplate these things, we need to look at these things and evaluate how we love other people in light of how God has loved us. As Paul says, the love of Christ compels us. Love today and in, in our world is this abstract thing 
this thing that you, you know it exists. And we talk about the love of God here. And the love of God is in Jesus coming to die for our sins, to live the life that we could not live, to pay the price that we deserve to pay on our behalf. And that love is so great, so infinite and giving and unchangeable. It shapes who we are and it shapes our relationships with other people. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for the, the way in which you loved us. The way in which your love is, is on display. Uh, uh, something that we, we marvel at. We, we can't comprehend the, the depth of your love, but the more we, we think about it, the more it, it, it shapes us, the more it, it compels us. Lord, I, I pray that we would just be just be taken by the, the greatness of